Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the VC Brunner podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm your host Digjay. Today I have with me a very special guest, Max Rofaga, founder of Finemise, which is a UK-based fintech startup building the world's largest and most engaged finance community and making finance accessible to millennials. Prior to Finemise, Max founded D&Deal, which was Switzerland's second biggest multi-category e-commerce player after Amazon. and was later acquired by media conglomerate Ringier. He is also a mentor at Techstars and Startup Bootcamp and was named one of the Forbes 30 under 30 for finance in 2016. In today's episode, Max shares his learnings as a second-time entrepreneur, his approach towards building products, why startups are in the business of making bets, and what it means to build a community around your product. I had a great time talking to Max and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Let's jump in to listen to the full episode and find out what Max has to share. Hey Max, welcome to the VC Brunner podcast. Glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So Max, could you provide our listeners with a brief background about yourself? I'm originally from Berlin. I ended up studying in the UK and in the US. I studied economics and international relations. And while I was at university, I kind of explored different industries through internships. So I looked into consulting, I looked into banking. And then in my final year, I did an internship, a summer internship at eBay, and that actually made me realize again how much I love internet products. So the reason why I bring that up is because I like to describe it almost like I got distracted with all these like consulting and banking and internships because that's what at university everybody pushes on you. And the eBay experience for me was eye-opening in a sense because when I was in high school and middle school, I already got into building websites. I was one of the first kids, if not the first one at my school to have a website. I coded it myself in HTML and a little bit of CSS and found that really really fascinating and would like spend my lunch break in the computer room building websites like playing around with flash websites back in the day was like a big thing and then I, at university i kind of forgot about all of that and just was like focused on on business stuff and then going back into ebay i realized okay like this whole internet space is super exciting because it moves really fast and and you can build really fast and so after i graduated i thought okay maybe i can find a bit of a combination of the two and i ended up doing a consulting job for i think a year in london and it was a consulting job with a really strong focus on technology and media and did some really cool stuff there did uh, we we also did a lot of uh, sports as well so we, i i was involved in in one in a private equity deal where we sold the company that owns all the fifa rights for football etc and uh, that was really cool but basically what happened was i would find myself just reading tech press all day and like seeing what other people are doing in the tech world and I was procrastinating almost because i just kept reading this stuff and and i was like oh i can't be bothered now to create this powerpoint presentation because that's all you do in consulting <laughs> and then basically one day I was like this is not really for me and so after a year I decided to quit and then decided to start uh, my my first company Uh, and so in my entire career I've only ever had a job for one year um, and I've been working now for I guess 10 years. Wow, that's pretty cool. Not everyone has that on their CV. I mean it kind of just happened, you know. I think I've always wanted to start a company. I think that's just been in my DNA. So Max, let's start off by discussing a bit about your first startup. Tell us what were your key learnings as a first-time entrepreneur and maybe if you can share some of the mistakes that you made when you were starting off for the first time. 
I mean, there's so much, so it's always difficult to, I think, condense. But I think one of the things um, that I always highlight is the importance of culture and all these like soft factors. I think when I was, when I started my first company, I was very young. I was like 23, 24, maybe. And I think when you're young like that, then you don't appreciate all the soft factors. You kind of think that work as hard as you can and, uh, and it's all about the results. But then as you scale and you get larger, you understand actually in order for everything to stick together, you need to have a really, really strong corporate culture. And we tried to, to build it afterwards. Uh, we tried, we put a lot of emphasis into like creating this culture in hindsight. And that became very difficult. And, and I, and I realized, okay, next time I do something, I need to set the culture from the start. And so that's with Finimize, for example. One of the first things I did is I wrote down the culture manifest. And so now to this day, we reference that when we hire people. I also think when you're young, I think this for me also happened when I started Pinamize. I think it's really easy to get lost almost in all of these frameworks, blog posts of people talking about how to start a startup. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I think even the good stuff, I think sometimes can be misleading because you might misinterpret what the context should be. And I think it's really, really easy to like read some amazing Silicon Valley blog post and be like, okay, we need to do this. But it might be the totally wrong approach for what you're doing. And I think as a result, oftentimes you then start to overthink things. You're like, okay, this framework isn't totally working for us, et cetera. And what I always like to remind people on our team of is like, think of the time when you were in school. Maybe like you were building something cool and you got really proud of building it and you wanted to show it to everybody. Like that is ultimately the feeling that we strive for when we're building digital products. It doesn't matter how, whether that fits into some Silicon Valley framework or not. Like ultimately, you should be proud of what you're building. And it's very likely then that other people will like it too. And so I think sort of really coming back to basics, trusting your instincts, I think that's also something that's that I personally, and again, this might not apply to everybody, but my personal uh, view is that that's really important. Right. Very cool. So you sell off your first startup and quickly start your second one. Could you share a bit more about what led you to start your second startup, Finimize? What was the genesis behind the idea? And why do you think it's critical to solve for a broad problem like financial literacy? Yeah. So, I mean, Finimize has been quite a journey, which started off with a very simple experience. And I'll tell you about the experience and then I can tell you a little bit about the journey because it certainly wasn't the journey that just went from A to B. We, we definitely took some A, B, C, D in between. The experience that I had was, was I think, resonates with everybody because I think we've all been there. I started saving money. I was in my mid to late 20s and I basically just took money from my salary, put it onto a savings account and I just rinse and repeat for multiple months. Then one day I, I wake up and I, and I realize, amazing, I've built up savings. And very quickly the question became, so what do I do with those savings? Because I knew that my, I was basically losing money by leaving them, by leaving the money on the, on the savings account because the interest rate was so low and inflation was there, et cetera. Basically, what should I do with those savings is what, what led me to start Finimize. Because as I embarked on this journey, the first thing that I did was naturally to go see a financial advisor. But the problem was at the moment I walked through the door of this financial advisor, I saw that they had all the brochures laid out on the table. And I noticed very quickly that every brochure had their logo on it. And I knew enough to, to realize, okay, this is not everything that's out there. So why are you only showing me your own products? And it's very quickly became obvious that this was a sales pitch for their products rather than them genuinely wanting to help me. And I knew pretty quickly, okay, this is not the right solution. So I went back home, started to inform myself as much as I could online. And then the evenings, I was in a fortunate position where I would meet friends of mine. A lot of them were 
working in finance and some of them were older than I was and they knew much more around like investments and stuff like that. And so I would ask them all the questions that arose from the materials that I read throughout the day. And at the same time, I just kept bumping into people who were in the same boat as I was. So they were lacking the finance knowledge, but they also didn't have this community around them that I had of people who could empower them to making the right investment decision. And that was the genesis moment for Finamice. Right. So you're basically helping people make informed financial decisions. Yeah. So Max, tell me one thing. How do you build a product that is trying to tackle such a broad problem like financial literacy? Yeah. First of all, let's look at the the problem. So there's 86% of millennials who save each month. They keep more than half of their savings in cash, as I was doing, because they didn't have access to suitable financial advice. So then the question became, why is this such a big problem? And if you look at the data that since the year 2000, with the exception, I think, of two years, Every year, millennials have been putting less money into the financial markets, even though there's all these fintechs and, and invest techs and all these new products are out there. So the question then becomes, why? And the driver of this downward trend is pretty much exactly the experience that I had, which is three quarters of the people who say that they want to make an investment say that they lack the know-how to do so. And that's why they don't do it. And of the remaining 25%, roughly, of those say that when they make an investment decision, they consult the media and they ask their friends. And so that's really what we have been building, Finamize. So we provide you the media, so we give you all the content, and we give you the friends, i.e. the community, to help you make the investment decision. And within that, I think we've been experimenting a lot. You know, what's what's the right product? How, How does it look like? And I think then, once you're at that point, that's when we started to, to look more at frameworks of how can we optimize the product. I think at the beginning, you have to just throw paint at the wall and see what sticks. And what, when you start to see that it sticks, then you can start getting a bit more quantitative. And, that, and, and so that's kind of how we operate, right? So, and I think there's actually an amazing podcast by Daniel Eck from Spotify about this, who describes you're in the business of making bets. And if the bet is valuable enough, then go for it. But at the end of the day, it's a bet. There's no way of doing a sort of a calculated risk here. And if you feel like that it's a good bet, then double down and try it. And if the bet works, then you can start optimizing and then you can start getting more quantitative. And if it doesn't work, then figure it out as quickly as possible and then try, try another bet. Right. I think that approach totally makes sense. But one thing that probably startups need you know, to do that, to iterate and to experiment is strong feedback loops, strong feedback channels from the customers, right? So how do you do that at Finimize? And what would be your advice to startups that are trying to wire those feedback channels to make those optimizations and to iterate their product? Yeah, so so the way that we do it, for example, is we say, come up with a problem hypothesis. Let's just say the sign-up flow isn't good, just as a basic example. So so why is it not, why is it not where we want it to be? Okay, so let's look at some of the data, but let's also talk to our users. Then you take you take those quantitative and qualitative research pieces, put them together, and then you develop a solution hypothesis. Maybe you develop five solution hypotheses for the same problem, and then you define an experiment. The important thing with the experiment is that you define a key metric that you will measure to decide whether the experiment is successful or not. Right. Because otherwise, the risk becomes that you start doing all these experiments and you're never really sure did, did this work or did this not work which we've also, you know, ourselves experienced, where you kind of put all this effort into the experiment and at the end you're kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure if this works or not. So I think this is really important. Right. 
And then you just do that over and over and over and over. Basically, we do this every single week. And you can do this for everything, right? You can do this for retention. You can do this for acquisition. And we are in a very fortunate position that we have our community. And so for us, actually, it's really, really easy to get user feedback because we have we have chat groups, we have meetups, which you're very familiar with, uh, and they all give us data points and they all give us feedback. And so I think we are actually in a bit of an unusual position there. If you don't have what we have, then there's platforms out there where you can buy user tests and stuff like that. And people, you can pay people to, to try your product. And that's also, I think, quite useful. There's a really amazing uh, uh, social consumer app. And what they do, it's a bit for a younger audience, but what they do is they, they go to McDonald's and at lunchtime, and then all the school kids are standing there and trying to get lunch. And because their product is quite young, they basically go to them and say, hey, can you try out our product for 10 minutes and I'll buy you your McDonald's. And then they basically do the test with them outside and then the colleague goes inside and gets them the, the meal. Costs you, what, five, five dollars or four dollars and you have a user test. And so there, yeah, I think there's so many ways how you can be creative in, in, in that. Uh, you just have to think about it. Right. Some very interesting ideas there for user testing. And I agree to your point. I think it's important to define that key metric before you start getting that initial user feedback and before you start judging some of the experiments that you're trying to carry out. Yeah. And I think there, it's again, it's important to not, for the first maybe 5,000 users, personally, I don't listen to them that much because at that stage, I'm still building my own vision. Right. And you're never going to please everybody. And especially if a product is really young, Everybody is going to think they're the next Steve Jobs and going to give you the, all their feedback that they have. But that's not your product, you know? So you have to, I think there, again, you have to do the bet and, and actually fully do the bet and build it out of conviction. And then when you are there where you think you want to be, then I think you start listening to users. Personally, that's how I, I like to do it. I think if you go get user feedback too early, it becomes, it, there's a risk at least that it can become distracting as well. Right. Totally makes sense. I think it's important to be selective about that user feedback and more so decide about the timing when you want to start channeling that user feedback back into your product. You also touched upon this community aspect and, you know, how it makes it easier for you to listen to user feedback and, you know, do some of the experiments that we discussed earlier. So could you talk a bit more about how you build this community around Finimize? What does it really mean to have a community around your product? Yeah, so for us, the very honest answer is it was never the plan. It kind of just happened. And then we went with the flow. So what happened basically was that uh, one day we're like, hey, let's just meet some of our users. And we met them in a, in, a, in a pub. And we thought maybe like 10 people maximum would show up. And then that would be pretty cool. I think we ended up having like 30, 40, maybe even more people coming. And we're like, wow, this is, this is pretty crazy. And... Then we decided, okay, let's do this again. And we did it more and more. And then that became like a, a meetup. And we started having photos and Instagram and et cetera, and started putting it in our newsletter. And then people would say, hey, this looks really cool. Can you do this in New York? Can you do this in Sydney? All over the world. And then at that stage, we said, okay, we would love to, but we can't because we can't fly around the world all day. Um but why don't you do it in Sydney? And why don't you do it in New York? And why don't you do it in Mumbai? And and that's how it started. And then it kind of just developed itself. And we obviously have a community team that that uh, does a fantastic job at at uh, at scaling all of this and providing the platforms and helping 
the community host. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know yourself, it's it's down to to the community hosts and the community directors to do this. And I think from what we've seen, the reason why people do this is because they believe in, in the mission that we've set for ourselves and they believe what we're trying to achieve. And that you can't buy that, you can't force that, just is a natural thing. Again, a soft factor uh, that I mentioned earlier on. And in terms of how other companies can use a community, I think there's now this renaissance of community uh, happening right now. I think the question is, is, is always like, what is the purpose of the community? So just having a meetup for the sake of having a meetup, you know, what, why, what outcome, why are we doing this? And so I see a lot of companies who are basically just using community as a way to talk about their own product. And that's cool, but that to me is not really a community. I think that's just you organizing an event. Community is, is when people interact with each other and that's what creates value. So sharing experiences about, hey, this is how I got into impact investing. Here's the platforms I looked at. Here's how I made my decision. Here's how much money I put in first. Like, here's how I would do it over again if I were you. That's community, peer to peer. And I think what I see a lot is companies say they have a community, but it's, it's not peer to peer. It's company to the user. And I think this peer to peer element, there needs to be a purpose there. And uh, oftentimes, I guess that will be connected with the mission of the company. I guess my next question to you is, what's the next big goal for Finemise? You know, what's the plan in the next five years? Our ambition is we want to build the world's largest and most engaged finance community. And the way that we picture that is that from a user point of view, we want to be able to provide an experience where you come into the app, you tell us a bit about yourself, what are you interested in, what do you want to find out more about. We give you content that's highly relevant to you. And then we say, hey, why don't you go speak to other people who've gone through exactly what you're about to go through in your local community? And in order to achieve that, obviously, we need to do two things. One is we need to invest into our content and we need to be able to personalize it more. So if you're living in, in Mumbai versus someone living in Sydney, those are going to be different experiences, obviously. And then, you know, quite obviously, we need to have communities in all those cities because otherwise the experience won't work. And that's really what we're building towards. Currently, we're investing much more into our content. We're producing different formats. We started interviewing more and more experts because we found that experts are really useful for our members as well, getting that expert advice. And then we're working on understanding, okay, what's the best way to really create and develop community in the, in the different regions with the ultimate aim, like I said, of building the world's largest and most engaged finance community. Well, all the best, Max. I'm sure with the pace that Finemise is growing, you're going to achieve that goal very soon. I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk a bit more about, you know, founder investor dynamics. And Max, you've obviously seen that, you know, across both the startups that you've worked for. Yes. You've also been a mentor for, you know, Startup Bootcamp and Techstars. And naturally, you interact with a lot of young startups. So let me start off by asking you this. What's the most common question that you, you know, get asked as a mentor from some of these early stage startups? I don't think they necessarily ask it, but I think I definitely experience this as well as what well. I think a lot of times people come with a product and they are so focused on the product or the idea and they forget to think about the distribution. And, and I think that's always the, the big question. Okay. So how, how do you get into the distribution? How do you distribute your product? And that's, I think often what, what, what we talk about. And, and I think same with, you know, my own company. When you're starting a company, you're excited about the product. And so it's very easy to only look at the product. And the reality is that you need distribution as well. And you need to think about distribution and, and marketing channels, et cetera. 
and it's probably you know half and half kind of uh, split there and uh, i think oftentimes when people start a company i think that's kind of the missing puzzle piece so max is there a framework or an approach that you would suggest to you know break down and think about the go to market strategy especially at an initial stage of a startup there's a really good book that i uh, read a while back by a guy called i think gabriel weinberg he started um, duckduckgo it's this private search engine and he wrote this book bullseye framework and the whole idea there is he basically you know if you picture bullseye it has outer rings and inner rings and, and you start with the outer rings and each ring represents growth channels and you try out in the beginning everything and then you document very clearly what works what doesn't work and then you move to the next ring and then you try more of what worked and then you eliminate again and you do that until you have maybe like three channels and then you really double down on those so that's how we actually started in a really interesting experiment like that a good framework and then i think on the flip side there's also again not to get too hung up on on frameworks sometimes you also don't you just need to do some research sometimes you don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel um so if you know for the product that you're building google search ads everybody's doing google search ads and that's how they're growing the business then i guess there's two ways to look at that one is okay everybody's doing this i'm probably not going to be able to compete with them because i don't have the resources or they're so much further ahead or you can kind of look at it you can say okay so they've figured out that google search is a reasonable acquisition channel for them so let's double down on that and there i think you you need to do research into understanding you know why is it why is it google search ads how does it work what are the economics etc because at the end of the day i think also when you're building something there's so many if you think about sort of all the things that are question marks right so like does the product work did i find the right audience did i find the right growth channel like there's so many question marks the more question marks you can eradicate the better and if you can eradicate a question mark around the acquisition channel by really understanding what works for adjacent companies and why does it work and and why might it work for me or why it might not work for me i think that's already really helpful because i think again you need to balance finding your own way and boiling the ocean and i don't i don't think there is a framework for that but i think it's just sort of this natural balancing act that that you constantly have to do yeah i think you summarized that really well uh the other question that i had you know from your experience of working with investors across both startups what type of investors do you prefer having on your cap table and how should a founder decide you know if if the investor is going to be the right fit for them yeah so i'm a very big fan of having operational investors so people who have operational background and maybe later on if you're a established company with established revenue streams and it becomes a bit more of a financial optimization exercise then i think it's interesting to get more of a financial ex-banker kind of investor but i think you know in the early days they like to think that they have value to add but i think it's very rare that they actually can because they simply haven't been through it themselves whereas if you have people who've gone through it whether it's failed or whether it's been successful you know they understand what it is all about and i think then it's important to find people who you get along with who have a similar way of working but who who you feel confident to challenge and they feel confident to, to challenge you and then also you know i think a, a large point of this whole investor stuff is bringing in an interesting network as well to help you with finding new investors to help you with perhaps hiring to help you with partners i think a lot of times institutional investors promise a lot when it comes to that and i think there you need to do your homework in terms of references etc 
whether they actually do do that in reality. And so that's why, you know, I think the, the most valuable people have always been people who've really been in the trenches and done it themselves. Right. Makes sense. I think with that, I want to quickly segue into our final segment of the show, which is the rapid fire round. And this is how it works. I'll ask you a few questions and I hope to get your immediate thoughts on the same. Let's do it. Okay. First question. What's your favorite book and what's a book that you would suggest every entrepreneur should read? Um, I don't think I have a favorite book. A book that I'm currently reading, which I think is, is, is an interesting read, is uh, the autobiography of Michael Ovitz, who started Creative Artists Agency, CAA, which is Hollywood's biggest talent agency. Um, similarly, I think, for example, Shoe Dog from uh, the founder of Nike is really interesting. I think it's re- always really interesting to understand how do they build their businesses? How do they think? Because it gives you this sort of look into inside their, their heads. And I really appreciate those kind of books. Um, sometimes it gives me inspiration for, for doing certain things. Sometimes it's just an interesting read. But I try to read more across different sectors, verticals, in order to make sure that I'm not in sort of some tech echo chamber. Great. Next question. What would be your alternate career option if not running Finemize at this point? Mm, good question. I thought about for a while actually staying in academia. I thought that was always really uh, interesting because I like the intellectual challenges there. I think sometimes when you work, it doesn't feel like you're always fully using your brain. And I think if you're doing academia, it can really help you like grasp totally new concepts. So I think that's really interesting. Um, if I weren't doing Finemize, I would definitely be running or starting another company. I have a whole range of ideas always, but uh, luckily... I don't have to do that right now. That's very cool. I'm open to chat offline if you want to discuss some of those ideas right now. <laughs> so you're going to continue to be an entrepreneur one way or the other. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's awesome. So here's the last question from the rapid fire round. People from the startup ecosystem that you look up to and that inspire you. I mean, there's the obvious ones like Jeff Bezos, who or like yeah, Jeff Bezos obviously is like incredible, very thoughtful amazing execution super strategic uh then you have like more recent examples like in elon musk is obviously just kind of a fascinating character and is reminds me sometimes of this apple ad uh here's to the crazy ones so he definitely is a controversial character but he's obviously like leaving a dent in the world but i often you know i think some of these slightly less famous people i find more interesting to understand how, how they went about it i find you know, I'm German. I find a lot of these German industrial companies really interesting how they started after the war, whether that's uh, that largest media company, Axel Springer, how they started, or whether that's Haribo for like gummy bears, uh, how they started. I think what, what always unites everybody is that they, it started with a founder who was really, really persistent, had a very specific product vision, and then went for it. And I think in the older days, it basically took them all of their life or, or, or multiple generations to, to make it into a ginormous company. I sometimes find those stories much more inspiring than some, some founder who raised $100 million and ends up owning a single-digit percent of the company in, in the end. It's an amazing uh, accomplishment, and obviously there's amazing companies that have been built out of it. But personally, if you ask me about inspiration, I find it more inspiring to sort of see how they do it with less resources. Really interesting. So Max, before we say goodbye, any last thoughts for budding and aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this podcast today? Yeah, I think kind of what I've been uh, hammering home, I guess, is uh, make bets, follow your intuition, do it out of conviction, and 
be proud of what you're doing. And once you're there, then start looking at quantitative and qualitative research to assess whether you're on the right path. But I think it has to be a journey where you're doing it because you're passionate about it and you believe in what you're doing. I think that's a perfect note to end the show on. Max, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website, thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VCpreneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining. Oh, 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 oh,